June the 6th, 1944, more than 160,000 Allied troops were dropped and storming the 50-mile stretch of coastland in Normandy, France. As they advanced into the midst of a Nazi stronghold, the bullets whistling past their heads, they gave up more than 9,000 Allied soldiers that were either killed in action or wounded. And as we look to their valor and as we look to their courage and as we look to their sacrifice, if we learn nothing else, we learn that evil will not be defeated through passivity. That evil must be confronted and evil must be battled and evil must be defeated. You know, we see this even more clearly at the cross, don't we? That our Lord looked down on the earth and, having, and seeing the, the earth in the midst of all of its brokenness and seeing the earth under the influence of evil and under the reign and rule of the law and through the rule of Satan himself, he did not stay passive in heaven, seated upon his throne, but rather he took on flesh, walked into the earth, and went to the cross facing down evil with decisive and aggressive action. Brothers and sisters, there is no place for passivity in a cosmic war. As the enemy comes after us, and as the enemy comes after our church, and as the enemy comes after our joy, and as the enemy comes after our marriages, as the enemy comes after our children, there is no place for passivity. But instead, we must roll up our sleeves and take aggressive action, pushing back the fronts and strongholds of evil to the advancement and conquest of the kingdom of God. And I want us to see that this morning in our text. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, in which we are going to see both a, a provocative and gut-punching passage that is going to call us toward aggressive action in this cosmic war. Call us toward rolling up our sleeves and doing something with the faith that has been entrusted to us. James chapter 2, the book of James is toward the end of your Bible. It's uh, right after the book of Hebrews, so just keep going. You haven't gotten there yet. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? James chapter 2, we're going to read verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So as as I said, our text is both provocative and gut-punching. It is difficult, and it is mind-boggling, and it is convicting, and it is powerful, and it is yet at the same time gracious. When we come to James chapter 2, we have James, who is the uh, very direct and assertive half-brother, younger half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself. And he's coming to us, and he is calling for us to be evaluators of our faith. To evaluate the character of our faith, and to evaluate the, the nature of our faith, and to evaluate the genuineness of our faith, so that we might know whether or not our faith is life-giving, saving, delivering, powerful, mind-altering, life-transforming faith, or if our faith is instead worthless, useless, lifeless, dead faith. That what James is calling for each of us to do is to look at the faith that is in our lives. To look at the belief and the trust that we have uh, affirmed in the Lord Jesus himself. And to see whether or not that is in fact the faith that saves and the faith that transforms. Because what James is teaching us is that any faith that doesn't lead to faithfulness is a dead faith. Any faith that doesn't change who we are more into the image of Christ is not, in fact, a saving, delivering faith. Any faith that doesn't lead to fruitfulness is worthless and useless and lifeless and powerless. As powerless or as lifeless as a vineyard that produces no grapes. As worthless as a light bulb that produces no light. And so twice he asks us, what good is it? What good is it? What good is a faith without works? What good is a faith that never does anything? What good is a faith that never leads us to faithfulness? He gives us an example of this faith. Uh, or he gives us an example to help us kind of rot, wrap our minds around this in verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister that is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He says that there is someone in your church, someone that you know is a brother or sister, or at least you're alleging to be their brother, you're alleging to be their sister in the faith, and you know that they are, they are cold. And they are hungry. And seeing their coldness and seeing their hunger, you look at them and you think, man, you know, I know I'm supposed to do something here, but that would be kind of inconvenient. I got a lot going on. I got a lot on my plate. 
I, I know that they got some needs in their life, but you know I'm really kind of saving up for a kitchen remodel. And I don't really know how, how giving them some, some money to provide for them is going to fit into my kitchen remodel. And so what do you do? You think, well, I can't tell them that. I can't look at my hungry brother or sister and, and no Christian person is going to look at them and say, listen, I've got a kitchen remodel going on and your, your, your hunger problem, just I can't deal with it right now. So what do they do? They spiritualize it, right? They look at them and they say, be warmed in the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Use your hunger, use your, your weakness as an opportunity to trust in the Lord, right? This is nothing more than spiritualized unbelief. Spiritualized unbelief. Because this person is not simply a stingy person. This is a person that doesn't truly trust and believe in the Lord. This is a person who believes that they need their nest egg more than they need the Lord Jesus for their sake of their happiness and their joy. This is a person that believes that their schedule, that the Lord is going to call them to do something with their schedule that they are not going to be able to redeem and that is not going to be honorable and not going to be good. The truth of the matter is, is this is a person who is looking at someone in need and believing that obedience to the Lord and fruitfulness in the Lord and faithfulness in the Lord is not the pathway to joy, but rather their own convenience and their own, their own prosperity. And so they are not trusting, they are not believing that the Lord God is all that they need to be satisfied. So what do they do? They do nothing. They do nothing. They're fruitless. They, they, they accomplish no good. And you know, we might listen to this and that might seem odd. You think nobody's going hungry? Well, first of all, we don't know that. That, more that, that happens more often here than we believe. But you know, he could have just as well have said, there's a teenager in your church that needs to be discipled, and so you looked at them, and you said, well, go and be obedient and be faithful and be discipled, but you never took interest in discipling them yourself. This could just as well be a senior adult in our church that we know is lonely and having difficulty keeping up their property, and so seeing their plight, we look at them, and we say, well, don't be lonely. Take refuge in the Lord and get you some help, and then move on about our lives without actually meeting the need ourselves. What good is it? What good is a faith that does that? What good is a faith that doesn't move us to meet the needs with the gospel love of the Lord Jesus? What good is a faith that never actually accomplishes anything that Jesus has called us to do? Called us to do. So I ask you to look at your faith. Look at your faith. Evaluate your faith. That's what James is calling us to do here. Do you see evidences of fruitfulness? Do you see evidences of faithfulness? Do you see in your life where you are rolling up your sleeves and getting into the messiness of people for the purpose of the gospel? Do you see in your life where you are rolling up your sleeves and diving in to the hard work that's involved in building up a church as we saw in Ephesians 4 so that our children and our, our babies and our teenagers and our senior adults are all being ministered to and taught the gospel and trained in the gospel and called to gospel faithfulness. Look at your faith. What fruit is there? Because what good... Is a faith that doesn't lead to faithfulness. 
What good is a faith that doesn't lead to fruitfulness? When we get to verse 17, he really said, he, he starts off verse 17 by saying, so. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And what we get there, when he says so, he's like, so, so this is the point. This is the point. This is what I'm trying to, to break through with in your life. This is what I'm trying to come across with. So, so if you look in your life and you see faithlessness, if in your life we, you do not see fruitfulness and you do not see faithfulness and you do not see good works, then you need to know that whatever faith it is that you have, whatever belief it is that you're clinging to, whatever acknowledgement of God is in your life is in fact worthless and dead. It's as dead as a body separated from a soul. You may be visible, you may be apparent, but you are in fact a corpse. Your faith is superficial and it's shallow. Your faith is not saving, it is merely convenient. Remember, if you'll remember back Many, many moons ago, for those of you that were with us when we were preaching through Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, I told you back then that much of James is a commentary and an application of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. That much of what James uses his book to do is to kind of unpack and apply those words of Jesus in the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And I think that is very much the case here. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. I opened the service this morning by reading it to you. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said that you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit, right? That you will be able to evaluate the nature and the character of someone's faith. You will be able to evaluate whether or not someone's faith is living, breathing, active, and real by looking at the fruit in their life. That you, in fact, will know if your own faith is living, active, and true, delivering, and saving by looking in the mirror and evaluating the fruit of your life. But do you remember how he lands the sermon? Do you remember how he lands the sermon around verse 27 in chapter 7? He says, for all of you who hear these words of mine and then does them, does them, you are like the wise man. And you have built your house upon the rock. And when the winds of life and the troubles of life and the persecutions of the faith come and they beat against your house, your house will stand firm because your faith is living and active and strong. But if you hear these words of mine, even if you agree with these words of mine, and yet you do not do them, you are the fool building your house on the sands. And when the struggles of life and the storms of life and the winds of persecution beat against your house and beat against your family, great will be the crash. So how can you know whether or not your faith is real? How can you know whether or not your faith is active? How can you know whether or not your, your faith is life-giving or lifeless, valuable or worthless, saving or yet condemning? Do you do the things that Jesus said? It really is that simple. Do you do what Jesus says? 
Do you cheerfully give to the poor? Do you hate divorce and abhor lust and love your enemies and pray for them? Do you store up your treasures in heaven or do you store them up in your attic or your garage or your jewelry box? Do you fast and pray? Do you do the words of God? Do you live them out in any kind of fruitful and faithful way to mark your life as being living in faith? If not, what good is a faith in Jesus that never leads you to look like Jesus? What good is a faith in Christ that doesn't shape you into the image of Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is so weak and so inept and incompetent that he would save you? That he would send the helper to take residence in you. The spirit of God to live in you and not at the same time transform you and use you to his glory? Look at your life. What fruits do you see? What works are there? What evidences of faith, living faith is there? Now maybe there's a reason that in the beginning I used the word provocative to describe this text. There's a reason. I know you guys think I'm a bit wordy and perhaps I am, but there's a reason that I use all these words that I use, right? And there's a reason that I use the word provocative to describe this text. Because some of you are listening and you're thinking, now wait a second, preacher. Wait a second. See, I was here during Advent. Amen. And I was, uh, I was here when you preached on justification from Romans chapter 3. And I remember, preacher, that when you were preaching justification from Romans 3, 21 to 26, that you explicitly, repeatedly, annoyingly, over and over and over said that we are saved by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I remember that, preacher. So you're going to come back and now you're going to tell me that faith is inadequate. Now you're going to tell me that grace is not enough. Now you're going to tell me that it is not just the righteousness of Jesus being given to me by no merit or works of my own. Now you're going to say it not, it's just not just faith alone, but it is at the same time works along with. Are, are, you, are you undoing all of this, preacher? Are you contradicting yourself? What I want us to see is that faith and works are not enemies of one another. That is a distortion of the gospel. That is a distortion of the gospel that is as old as the gospel itself. That, in fact, one is the cause and the other is the effect. That, in fact, faith always, 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 where it lives, where it thrives, where it is saving, always gives birth to works. See, I think it's easy for us to read James chapter 2 here, and, you know, we read him saying, like, if you don't have works, it's dead. We, he even goes so far to say in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Yo, right? So you, you, we, we think that, man, if Paul read this, 
he'd be ticked off that James and Paul must not have been very good friends because we remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, right? That in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us explicitly that we are saved by grace through faith, not by our works, not by our merits, that no man may boast. We remember what he said way back in Romans chapter 3, that when he says that we have been justified by the finished work of Christ, that Christ is the propitiation for our sin and none other. We remember when it says in Romans chapter 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not by their works, right? But by the grace of the Lord. And so we, we think that, man, James and, Paul, James and Paul must not have been very close. James and Paul seem to be teaching two different tracks, two different paths to the Lord. But I am convinced that had Paul read the book of James, and perhaps he did, many people believe that James may be the oldest book in the New Testament. That if Paul read the book of James, that as he read the book of James, and in fact, as he read the words from our passage this morning, that Paul would have said, Amen, James, preach on, brother. You know how I know that? Because James is addressing what Paul often addressed, the distortions of his gospel. Throughout Romans especially, I'm, I'm studying the book of Romans right now, and throughout the book of Romans we have Paul doing these interjections. In other words, he's anticipating the distortions of the gospel. He's anticipating the debates that are to come, or perhaps he's, he's answering debates that have already come to what he is preaching. And so you have in Romans chapter 5, Paul saying, wherever sin abounds, or wherever the trespass abounds, grace abounds all the more. But then well, how does he start chapter 6? How does he start chapter 6? Then should we go on sinning that grace may be abundant? Should we go on sinning so that grace may be shown to be big? Should we go on sinning to enhance and exaggerate the grace of God? And what is his answer to the rhetorical question? By no means. See, what he goes on to unpack in chapter 6 of Romans is that used to, before we had faith in Christ, before we were saved in Christ, we were living in bondage to sin under the reign and under the rule of the law and under the reign and under the rule of sin. In Ephesians 2, he calls us living as children of wrath, following after the prince of the power of the air. But then what happens in the gospel? He tells us that no longer... Are we ruled by sin? No longer are we under the reign of death. No longer are we under the reign of condemnation. But now, by God's grace, we are under the rule and the reign of grace itself. So much so that he goes on to say that now we are obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart. Do you know what that means? That means that when you are saved, when the Spirit takes residence in your life, that He literally reshapes and reforms all of your desires and all of your appetites and all of who you are, the very nature of your person. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new nature. He gives you new passions. He gives you new desires. He gives you new inclinations so that now where you used to chase after and desire the wickedness of the world and the appetites of the world and the appetites of the flesh, now there's a hunger in you for the things of God. 
Now in you there is a desire to please God with your life. Now, from your heart, you want to obey the Lord and follow the Lord. Not under compulsion, not out of guilt. From the heart, from the passion, from the love that you have for what the Lord Jesus has done in you and for you and with you. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if that happens, if, if the Lord so changes a person's heart that what they desire is different, if he so transforms them that the things that they do and the things that they long for and the appetites that they have are different, you just try to keep that man, you just try to keep that woman from being fruitful. You just try. They're not going to be perfect. They're not going to be perfectly fruitful. They're not going to be perfectly faithful. But man, they want it. They hunger for it. They long for it. That's the picture of living faith. That's the picture of saving faith. Saving faith is always at the same time transforming faith. And transforming faith is always at the same time working faith. Active faith. Doing faith. Becoming faith. Now, if that's still a little bit foggy in your mind, that's okay. If, if how this relationship between, between faith and works comes together, if that's still a little bit unclear in your mind, that's okay. Because James actually gives us three illustrations to help, uh, three examples to help us wrap our minds around what he is saying. He gives us one example of dead faith, of lifeless faith, of worthless faith. And then he gives us two examples of, of life-giving faith, of saving faith, of transformative faith. The first faith that he gives us is found in verse 19. In verse 19 it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So again, you have James here, and he is anticipating an argument. He's anticipating what you're going to say, or perhaps he's responding to an argument he's already heard. And he said, well, here's what you're going to say. You're going to tell me that Paul has told you that you are saved by grace through faith and it's not by your works. And so as a result, you're going to tell me that it does not matter what you do. It does not matter the works that are in your life. It does not matter the fruits that are there because you have grace. And because you have grace, works are now rendered irrelevant. You're going to tell me that when you hear what I'm saying, that instead that Paul tells us that whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. And if they call on the name of the Lord, it does not matter if they live like hell the rest of their life. As long as at some point they put their name on a card, walked into a baptistry somewhere, and did something that acknowledged the name of Jesus. That from that point forward, works is irrelevant. And James looks at that argument, and responds with a question that is so pointed, so direct, so strong, so powerful that it can suck the oxygen out of our lungs. James looks at that argument and he says, well then, what makes you different than the demons? What makes you different than the demons? The demons believe in Jesus. The demons know more Bible verses than you do. The demons know more facts about God than you do. In fact, the demons hear the name of Jesus and they shudder, which is probably more than can be said for you. What then separates you from the demons? 
faith that does not work, and a faith that does not lead to faithfulness, and a faith that is not fruitful is in fact demonic according to what James is saying. Many of you would say, if I were to ask you to describe the Christians in your life, you would say that most of the Christians that you know are not the radical, Bible-memorizing, church-faithful, financially-giving, mission-trip-going, gospel-sharing kind of Christians. That most of the Christians that you know are what you would classify as a normal Christian. A Christian that just goes to church most of the time. A Christian that, that tries to be a bit more moral than the people that they work with. Cuss a little bit less than the people that they work with. And just from there just kind of live, live normal. And what James is teaching us is that in fact a life like that, a life without fruit and a life without faithfulness and a life without works is not a normal Christian, is not a complacent Christian, is not a carnal Christian. In fact, they are not a Christian at all. Their faith is more like that of the demons than that of the disciples. Look at your life. You know, I had a bunch of boys staying in my house this week. And they're smiling because they already know what I'm fixing to say. And man, let me tell you, those, I'm excited about what these men are going to do for the Lord. They are, they are excited the Lord work in their life this weekend. But you know what I challenge them to do? I challenge them to reject any notion of normal Christianity I challenge them to reject any notion of Christianity that says, I'm not going to be one of those radicals. I'm just going to be normal. Because when you look at the examples of faith given to us in the Bible, there is no other option. There is no other description than a man or a woman that gives down, that lays down their life at the foot of the cross and says, Lord Jesus, you take me wherever you would have me to go and I will follow you regardless of the costs. That's why Jesus would tell people before they were to follow him, count the cost first. Count the cost first. Because if you, if you want genuine faith, if you want to genuinely follow me, if you're going to genuinely submit to my lordship, there's not going to be an easy exit. There's not an easy track. There's not a 101 and a 301. Man, we're all in or we're not at all. So I look at you and I ask you, as somebody that loves you, as somebody that cares about what happens to you, Listen up. This is life or death. It is not a choice between radical and normal. It is a, a choice between condemnation and eternal life. It is a choice not between obedience and kind of obedience. It is a choice between obedience or condemnation. Listen up, brothers and sisters. Listen up, friends and neighbors. This is life and death, whether or not you roll up your sleeves and get in the game. If one of you can find me an example of complacent, carnal Christianity in the Bible, I would love to hear it. But those are terms that we have invented. 
Those are terms that are not biblical, they are cultural. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to be the kind of church that changes the world, if we're going to be the kind of church that shakes the nations, if we're going to be the kind of church that changes Calhoun County, if we're going to be the kind of church that speaks life into young families, if we're going to be the kind of church that calls teenagers to go to the mission field, if we're going to be that kind of church, we must be a fruitful, faithful church living on mission for the Lord God, not like the demons. The next two examples he gives us of a life-giving faith. He gives us the example of Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, the father of the faith, and and Rahab, the spy-protecting prostitute. An odd couple if you would ever see one. You had Abraham who had more wealth than anyone else perhaps in the world at the time. And then you have Rahab who was an outcast in her own culture and at the least someone that you would not expect God to go after, right? And yet we know in Hebrews 11 that they are remembered because of what? Their faith. Their faith. They are given to us as examples of faith. And so James is saying, if you want to know about the relationship between works and faith, look at Abraham, look at Rahab, look at the father of the faith. Oh, you think that's too easy? Well, look at the hooker that got right with God and honored him. What was it about Abraham and Rahab that marked them as men and women of faith? What is it that that made them clearly people that obviously had surrendered their lives to God, obviously had trusted in the Lord for his deliverance? Abraham and Rahab were both called to radical obedience. Abraham and Rahab, and James points to this, were both called to do what seemed to be unreasonable, difficult, perhaps even impossible task by the Lord God. And Being presented with those tasks, they were, in fact, at the same time, presented with the question, do you trust me or not? Do you trust me or not? Abraham, God gave him his son Isaac in an old age, miraculously so. God told Abraham that he was going to use Isaac to make him into a great nation, and that he was going to use that nation to be a blessing to all nations. And then what did God demand out of Abraham in Genesis 22? To march him up to the mountain, to build an altar, and to lay his son on the altar and to sacrifice him. It means to kill him. And how did Abraham respond? No doubt without weep, with weeping, no doubt with wailing, no doubt with trepidation, no doubt with trembling, Abraham raises the knife. Abraham raises the knife, prepared to plunge it into the heart of his son. And yet the Lord delivered him. Rahab is given, and she lives in the midst of Jericho, a a wicked and debased culture. And the Lord has given Jericho into the people's, into his people's hands as a, as a part of the promised land. And, and so they're coming up against this mighty city of Jericho. And the Lord God has already told his people that I'm going to deliver miraculously Jericho into your hands. So they send two spies into Jericho. As they come into Jericho, who do they happen upon? None other than Rahab the harlot. And Rahab is faced with a question. Do I trust that the Lord will deliver me from the destruction he has promised if I 
take in the spies and care for the spies and, and help the spies to be safe? Or do I trust that if I commit this act of treason that the Lord God is not real and in fact my culture will execute me? My people will execute me. Is it treason against the world or is it, uh, or is it treason against God? Those were the options facing Rahab. And what did she do? She took the spies in. She took the spies in. Both Abraham and Rahab were faced with great costs of faithfulness. Both Rahab and Abraham were faced with great costs of fruitfulness. And both of them responded by saying, Lord, I will trust you. Lord, you will be enough for me. That even if it does cost me my life, I will deem it worth it. Even if it does cost me my beloved, I will deem it worth it because you are my greater beloved. Brothers and sisters, you should be very skeptical of a faith that's never cost you anything. You should be very skeptical of a faith that's never called you toward faithfulness. You should be very skeptical of a faith that you claim in your life that doesn't demand action. That doesn't demand you rolling up your sleeves and getting into the work of the church. You should be skeptical of a faith that doesn't demand you rolling up your sleeves and getting into the disciple-making process. You should be skeptical of a faith that doesn't demand you roll up your sleeves and go to the nations for the glory of God. You should be skeptical of a faith like that. What in your life are you doing that demonstrates trust and faith in the Lord? What? That's the example of Abraham and Rahab. So how is it that works can justify us? How is it that we are to, we are to take this radical statement that is given to us? I think the key is, comes in verse 22. When he says, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. It wasn't started there, it was completed there. It's not what saved him, it's what proved him. This, Genesis 22 is called a test, right? You see, faith always precedes works. Works does not save you, faith saves you. Faith in the Lord saves you. Faith in the finished work of Christ saves you. Faith in the resurrection of Christ. Faith and faith alone saves you. But what demonstrates your faith? What proves your faith? What evidences your faith? Works. Fruits. That's how you know if you were saved. That's how you know if you were a Christian. Not just by what you've said, but by now how you have lived it out. How you have responded to it. So we can say that faith, that, that works save us. That we are justified by works insofar as they give evidence to our faith. Insofar as they give proof to our faith. Insofar as they evidence that we have aligned and claimed allegiance with God and God alone. Insofar as they have proven that we will follow the Lord wherever the Lord would send us. It's like an acorn, right? You put the acorn in the ground and you can't see it. You don't know that it's there. It's beneath the surface. It's like the heart of a man. You can't see a new heart in a man, can you? You can't see a new nature in a man. And over time, what happens to the acorn, even though that you can't see it, it begins to sprout up, feeble at first, small at first, vibrant but, but feeble, and, and it sprouts up, and, and you can begin to see that, man, there's something under there. 
that over time, as time goes on, the oak tree gets bigger and it gets stronger and it grows in maturity until ultimately it is an acorn-producing, oak tree-producing tree. This is the picture of the Christian life. That what the Lord plants in us will grow out of us. And the longer it goes, the more we grow in gospel maturity. And the more we grow in gospel fruitfulness. So much so that people can see wherever we go, gospel seed is scattered. And there are other trees, other gospel trees growing up. Other branches attaching to the vine. There's a fruitfulness in our lives. Why? Because we trust we trust him. You see, this is what's going, what James is teaching here is what will lead a young man or a young woman to leave their family behind and go to a dangerous country as a missionary. What James is talking about here is what will lead a young couple, a young married couple to roll up their sleeves and not just to, to, to look blindly at orphan care, but to go at great expense to themselves to adopt those that are without a mom or without a dad. What James is teaching here is, is what will, will lead a young teenager to go and to walk against the currents at their high school. That they, even though they may be ridiculed, even though they may be, may be made fun of, even though they may be persecuted and may not get on the team or may not be in the group, that they will still walk steadily anyway. This is what will lead a retired man or retired woman to leverage their retirement and to spend their retirement as fruitfully as they can for the kingdom of God. It is this, that you trust God, that you trust God in all things, that you want to honor God in all things, and so demonstrate your allegiance to him in all that you do. You know, I told you in the introduction that there is no place for passivity in a cosmic war, that we must take aggressive action. And the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, that if you truly are a follower of Christ, aggressive action is not even an option. The spirit in you will grow you and lead you and take you. Brothers and sisters, may 2017 be the most fruitful year that we've ever had. May 2017 be the most faithful year that we've ever had. I believe that the Lord gave us the local church so that we could come in and join in fruitfulness together, to take aggressive action together for the kingdom of God, that we might have a place in which it is natural and ready and expected for us to roll up our sleeves and go forward with the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, forgive us for seasons of unfaithfulness. Forgive us for times of inaction. Lord, on this day, may every believer heed the call and jump into the game and respond with a life of fruit and faith. God, on this day, might you fill men and women with gospel fervor. On this day, O oh Lord, might you, might you call them to gospel action and gospel conquest. On this day, Lord, would you raise up young teenagers and would you raise up senior saints and would you raise up empty nesters and would you raise up young Marys that live out the words of Christ. Father, I pray, I beg you, I plead with you through your spirit 
that for those here who have no fruit and who have no evidences of faith, in fact, are more like the demons than like Christ, that today, oh Lord, that you would convict them, that you would convict them of their wickedness and convict them of their sinfulness and show them that they are under the reign of sin, but that, Lord, on this day, you are offering them the rule of grace. Lord, who in the world would not take up the rule of grace over the rule of sin? God, I have no ability to change the heart of a man, but you do, and I am asking you, I am imploring you on behalf of those here that do not know you, that, Lord, you will call them out of a cultural Christianity, you will call them out of a normalized disobedience, and that, Lord, you will call them into the light to a radical faith in Christ the Lord. Move among your people, Lord. Call out the unsaved to be delivered on this day, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.